Hello, and you are listening to the District Download, the official podcast for the D.C. Young Republicans. My name is Bill DeMay. I'm joined here with Gilbert Fiedler and uh, Jonathan Housechild. Um, and we're just here on Friday night just to recap the week that was, uh, talk a little bit about what's going on uh, and what's coming down the pike. So I, uh, let, I'll let everybody else introduce themselves and uh, we'll get this kind of going. Uh, I'll start. Uh, Gilbert Fiedler, uh, Vice Chair of Political Activities here with the, the D.C. Republicans. Uh, yeah, I'm an engineer living in D.C. and I'm excited to talk to you guys today. So, uh, Jonathan Howenshield, I am the parliamentarian for the Young Republican National Federation and also the National Committeeman from the Pennsylvania Young Republicans. Uh, my day job, I work uh, in a, the nonprofit space. I do uh, communications and technology policy, homeland security policy, and I help run um, something of a legal center for the nonprofit that I work for. A man with many hats. And, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, I'm Bill. Uh, I'm a K Street type. I do government relations for a trade association, uh, and I get to do a bunch of fun stuff like that. So, uh, Without further ado, let's just kind of recap the week. So this week we had back-to-back uh, -back Supreme Court nomination hearings. Uh, we had just a little blip when it came to social media, um, when, it, when it came to a, a questionable article, uh, and a whole other bunch of stuff. So I'll leave it to uh, Gilbert. So what happened this week? Uh, there were dueling presidential uh, town halls. Uh, in which uh, President Trump, our, our president, uh, denounced both white supremacy and Antifa. And I don't recall uh, Joe, Joe Biden denouncing either outright in, in his town hall. Yeah, I wasn't able to tune in to either one of those. Um, but again, you know, just the this Biden's been very quiet when it's come to Antifa. Um Mm -hmm. And especially so when you look at Portland, where all of this madness is happening, you've got um, a candidate for mayor leading by 11 points who's openly wearing, you know, a skirt with Mao Zedong, Stalin, Che Guevara, and all these other communist mm -hmm. folks on the dress. I'm like, what is happening over in Portland? It's mind boggling. Yeah, and Joe Biden's really walking a tightrope, right, where he wants to seem moderate for the moderates, but doesn't want to tick off, you know, the far lefties by denouncing them. Uh, yeah, real, real, real tough spot. So, yeah. uh, you know, his strategy is just to stay as quiet as possible, I guess, <laughs> which is <laughs> smart considering, I guess. <laughs> Jonathan, what were some of the things that you saw this week? Um, so, obviously, being a lawyer, I did pay substantial attention to the ACB hearings. Uh, but then for me, that got interrupted with the, the day job and everything that happened with social media. So with the ACB hearings, I think it's really easy. Uh, ACB kind of introduced herself to the rest of the country and comported herself very, very, very well. And I think even that's an understatement. Uh, really demonstrated that she has the chops to be a Supreme Court justice and will probably be a Supreme Court justice to be reckoned with. Um, and really, I think the moment of the hearings was when she was, when uh, Senator Cornyn looked around and said, hey, we all have binders in front of us and notepads and full of notes and other material. 
what do you have in front of you? A notepad. And what does that notepad say? Well, it has the letterhead of the United States Senate. And to realize that she's being queried about sentences or even phrases that appeared in articles she wrote, you know, five, seven, 10 years ago. And she can recall it like that. And not just recall that sentence, but what she was arguing and what her point was in the broader context, I think really demonstrated to everyone in America that she's well qualified and then add on top of that, she's just a genuinely nice person. Yeah, and that's something I saw too. I, I saw that she definitely had a very kindly aspect to her, but she also didn't take any nonsense. I mean, the woman's a, a mother of seven kids. She knows how to, you know, snuff out, you know, nonsense when it comes about. And I, I wasn't able to watch the hearings in depth. I only got some of the sound bites, but some of the questions that were asked by some of the Democratic senators. Um, she just would respond in monotone, yes, Senator, or mm -hmm. just yes, yeah. and, and not necessarily roll her eyes, but you could just tell by the, the, the tone of her voice that she just was like, I know this was coming. I'm going to answer the way I know I'm going to answer, and it may or may not be the answer that you want to hear, but I mean, come on, this is common sense. So that that mm -hmm. part, too, I definitely yeah. saw. Yeah, from, from what I heard, yeah, she was just solid as a rock. Of course, yeah. you know, the Democrats' only goal was just to get a rise at her, out of her. You know, they didn't have any yeah. real legitimate, you know, questions. They didn't, you know, seem to know what they were, they were talking about all that much. And, you know, they were they were facing somebody who really did know what she was talking about. Yeah. Uh, that, that was tough for them. And uh, I think that's why uh, I think they're, they're kind of shivering their boots about it now. Yeah. Well... I mean, if you understand, so let's let's put aside the legal aspect of the hearing. What a lot of the Democrats were doing is very strategic. They're wanting her to say something that would end up forcing her to recuse herself on certain cases, cases involving the ACA, cases involving Roe v. Wade, involving elections issues, and even more with anything substantive due process or related to any social issue. That was their game plan in saying the things uh, like, hey, the president tweeted out that he opposed the ACA two days after he confirmed you, after he uh, appointed you, uh, nominated you. What do you have to say about that? Do you agree with it? Do you not agree with it? That's not... While some of us may think politically, I have to put my lawyer hat on. It's to get her to comment on it substantively so that if it comes in front of the court, she has to say, I already spoke on this. And in many respects, she was, especially day number two, she was sitting there going, I know why you're asking the question. You're asking the question because of this, and I'm simply not going to answer that question. Yeah. Uh the, the, the Democrats were just trying to put out mouse traps all day, and she mm -hmm. tiptoed around it like, you know, ballerina or a secret agent or something. Uh <laughs> and she was also observing what, in fact, her, her predecessor to the seat, Justice mm -hmm. Ginsburg, did, and the rule is so named after her, the Ginsburg rule. I mean, she's going in there and she's saying, I can't tell you how I'm mm -hmm. going to vote either thumbs up or thumbs down without knowing the context of any particular legal case. You know, that's left up to the Senate. Yeah. And it was really mm -hmm. good constitutional lesson 
being there are separation of powers each branch of government has their own responsibilities mm -hmm. the, the judiciary is solely to look at how the law was written and how to interpret that law in terms of the constitution and in many respects it mm -hmm. sometimes felt like that the nomination hearings based on the sound bites and some of the clips i've were was able to watch um after work uh they they seemed like as if they were applying they were interviewing her for an HHS position, asking her all these technical questions about the Affordable Health Care Act, um, as well as with just other things that are going on. She's not a policy person. She's there to interpret the law. Right. And, and let me give you a really good side-by-side -side example of how to properly ask a question and, well, I won't say answer, but versus how the Democrats did. So if you're talking about the ACA, the proper way to kind of figure out an answer is not to ask like a lot of what the the democrats did and and that's to present all these the stories of people that might lose coverage under the aca or um how it's benefited certain people and then say will you support their right or or uh you know nfib sibelius upheld the aca what do you think about that the proper way to do it is to say you say you take a textualist approach. What does a textualist approach mean? How do you define it? And then how do you kind of merge that with the principle of stare decisis, which simply means in Latin, let the decision stand. Um, and it refers to precedent. How do you merge the two, especially when a textualist reading may conflict with decisions that were handed down eight years ago? It gets at the same question, but one tells yeah. you her philosophy and how she's going to approach it versus how are you going to decide this case? Yeah, those are the right kind of questions. I think those are the kind of questions we were hearing from Republicans, but uh, mm -hmm. Democrats kept asking the same type of question and uh, kind of forcing ACB to sound like a broken record, continuously evoking you know, that the Ginsburg rule. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> And there was also the conversation, too, of what is consistent of a super president, something that's been gone over so many times that it's been established by judicial review, that it's basically set in stone a lock that this will never change. One of those that was an ex example that was raised was Brown v. Board of Ed um, as one of those super president cases. And I saw that the Democrats were trying to get her on that and try to, mm -hmm. you know, talked about how some of these cases not necessarily centuries back but rather decades back and maybe even years back with with trying to say is this super president and again just mm -hmm. a brilliant woman a brilliant judge she did not fall for the bait she gave exemplary answers to everything um and it was just it, it was phenomenal her performance um and her responses it shows that she's yeah. she's well qualified jurist and and I was even talking to a few friends of mine um, that I, I definitely think that, if anything, I think we could expect more Democrats when voting uh, for the nomination when it gets to the full Senate. There may be some Democrats that walk across the aisle and vote for the nomination. Um, some that I'm just throwing out there that I think are most likely are probably Manchin, uh, Cinema. Cinema's got a very strong libertarian streak. Um, based on her uh, voting record when she was in the House. Uh, Peters. Peters is in a tough race, as we all know. Um, Michiganders and Michigan YRs and YRNF have all gone to help knock on doors for John James. 
Uh, we're rooting for you. We're making calls for you. Uh, and and I think he would be a fool not to vote for AC, uh, you know, ACB. Uh, and then one other kind of, you know, reach, if you will, is probably going to be Diane Feinstein herself. I think that, again, she, you know, regardless of politically where she views, I think there might be a, a, ch- a chance that Diane Feinstein moves forward the nomination. Um, I, I, it might be crazy to some of our listeners out there, I, but I don't know. I, I got a hunch. It may not be as strong as a hunch as I hope, uh, but it's a hunch. Uh, I, in this respect, I disagree. I think Schumer has everyone lined up properly. I don't think we're going to see a single Democrat crossover. Um, as much as I'd like to see cinema or as I'd like to see mansion, I think it's going to be every single Democrat voting against her. And the, the excuse they're going to raise is not that it's not, it's not on her personally. It's not substantive. It's procedural. We're just following the McConnell rule from 2016. Which of course there's nuance. In 2016, the White House was open. It was con- the White House was controlled by Democrats. The, the Senate was controlled by Republicans. This actually is historical precedent. What is not what is not transpiring this time around is President Trump's running for re-election. So the White House there's an incumbent, and the party in control of the Senate is the exact same as the White House. Uh, so and you actually have historical precedent of confirming confirming Supreme Court justices in this exact scenario. Yeah, there's there's a logical argument to why some Democrats might want to switch over and vote for ACB, but yeah, the Democrats are very good at getting their ducks in a line and everybody uh, on the same page. Yeah, I mean, who, who's to know? Again, the formal hearings are over. Um, I, Jonathan, correct me if I'm wrong, but the vote out of committee is scheduled for... Uh, the 22nd. Uh, is that right? Yeah. Uh, let me pull up my calendar. It's next Thursday. It's next Thursday. Okay. Uh, so that would be, that is the 22nd. Okay. So yeah. if we're, if we're looking at the calendar 22nd, um, my guess is cloture is filed relatively soon thereafter. I, I want to say cloture requires 24 hour i mean there's people that know this better than i i do i think um mcconnell will file the motion for cloture and i think it's 24 hours before there's the vote so my guess is he files it as soon as it's the committee positively refers it uh there's 24 hours of grandstanding there's the cloture vote and then there will be 30 hours of debate and i I expect them to go to for mcconnell to say okay 30 hours we're going to go Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and we're going to go 12 hours a day. You know, he, McConnell, he does, he knows to set it very well. I think that McConnell has got his, his troops aligned uh, in file, ready to go, just as you said, Schumer does. And it could be a party line vote, but I think, I think all of our assumptions are, are correct that yes, she will be confirmed. And unlike what we saw two years ago, I, there's no way that somebody's going to dig up something that's going to derail this. You know, I, I'm actually surprised that it's not nearly as heated of a confirmation as, as two years ago. Um, and actually to my, to my just overall observation, it's gone fairly smoothly and it seems mm-hmm. all according to plan for McConnell and Senate Republican leadership. Yeah. And my guess is 
rather than try to come up with what are they calling it some sort of black swan event there the democrats will probably try to do everything they can to deprive the senate of a quorum they'll try to deprive on the 22nd they'll probably try to deprive the committee of a quorum uh, that just won't work for multiple reasons but then my guess is when the actual floor vote tries to happen they no democrat shows in in the hope that um at least a couple Republican senators, actually, I think they have to have three or four Republican senators don't show on the floor and deprive a quorum. Yeah, and we already know there's already two out there who have either expressed hesitancy to vote or just have flat out, we're not voting on a Supreme Court nomination during an election year. But you still have, out of those 53, you still have 51 um, right. that are lined up ready to go. Right. And, well, and then you have to ask the question of would those two people ally with the Democrats in an effort to deprive quorum, or will they at least play ball in the sense of at least sitting on the floor of the Senate, standing on the floor of the Senate to ensure there's a quorum? Gilbert, you had something to say? Oh, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm sure uh, our, all the Republicans will at least be want, wanting to play ball. And uh, as I recall, I think I heard it just today. Uh, Mitt Romney, who sometimes people are concerned with these kind of uh, controversial votes, did say that he's uh, willing and excited to vote in uh, ACB. Am I right in that? Did I hear that correctly today? <laughs> and I'm pretty sure he did issue a statement either earlier today or yesterday. Uh, the days have been blurring together uh, for <laughs> me this week, as I'm sure has been for the both of you gentlemen, uh, for sure. But yeah, it's very exciting. Um, that it all seems to go according to schedule with the ACB nomination. Um, so let's, uh, what, what else do we want to talk about? So this is just kind of like a end of week recap for those who are tuning in just right now. Um, just kind of, again, give you the district download, the national download, the local download, and the YR scene, um, which we'll be having in future segments uh, and future podcast episodes. So uh, what else is there to talk about, gentlemen? Well, I think the other big story of the week is the social media blow up over the New York Post story. And before we get into that, I'm going to get into the caveat that uh, as I talk about tech policy, it is my day job, but I'm going to be expressing my opinions and my opinions only, not the opinions of my organization, certainly not the opinions of my organization. Um, and what I would hope is to help people understand some of the nuances of the conversation around tech and tech policy. I, I know, you know, here in DC, for those that aren't in DC, uh, that may sound really like a strange disclaimer, but it's something you hear all the time in DC. And it does allow a little bit of speaking a little more freely. So with that said, a little bit of background. For those that don't know, the New York Post published a story uh, I think it was Tuesday, might have been Wednesday, um, regarding Hunter Biden. And there were a couple aspects of the story of Hunter Biden, but primarily they had gotten their hands on documents from a hard drive, emails, photos, and it was really an expose about how Hunter Biden had used his access to his father as vice president 
to ensure that he was very well paid, particularly by Burisma, but other foreign actors for access to the vice president. Um, what ended up happening after they released that, Facebook and Twitter decided for lack of better term to spike the story. Twitter for its part refused to let, uh, refused to promote, uh, let promote the story and also started URL blocking anyone sharing that story. For Facebook's part, all we know is that their VP of comms who used to work for Senator Boxer and various functionaries within democratic caucuses did tweeted out and, and did two things. First of all, he said that independent fact checkers should look into the story. And then he said that Facebook is, I believe the term was not promoting links to the story. In other words, they were actively suppressing. And of course, everything broke loose as uh, White House press secretary shared it and had her Twitter account frozen. Uh, the Trump team, same thing. And there, there was a lot of controversy about that. Then there erupted some claims of something called Section 230 and then looking into elections violations. So that's the background. Uh, anyone want to add anything before we start going into the policy and nuances and, and myths and realities? Uh, I'll, I'll give some kind of general thoughts before we get kind of into the, the mm -hmm. legal aspects and, you know, really setting aside uh, the legal aspects of it. Uh, I, you know, whether, you know, besides the legal aspects, I think, you know, we could agree it's wrong what kind of Twitter and Facebook did, you know, whether it's illegal or not. Um, as, as Americans, we hold dear um, free speech and, you know, anyone trying to kind of stifle that doesn't feel good. Uh, and the, but then also, of course, as, as American citizens, we, uh, we, we, we hold dear the, the laissez-faire principle, letting private companies do what they, they want to do. So it, it kind of comes into conflict. Uh, and so, yeah, the public square conversation is, is very dear, um, I think, in America. And it's, what's funny is it's never, I don't think before in America has the public square been a privately owned square. Uh, now with Facebook and Twitter and yada, yada, uh, um, the very main public square that, that we all use is, is now a, a private entity. So th those, those two kind of dear principles are now um, kind of coming in contention with each other. And I think, you know, that makes everybody kind of a little uneasy and unsure. And I just, I just think to kind of looking at it from like a, a political messaging optics point of view, this is really bad. Um, for Twitter and for Facebook, this is just them asking they want to get regulated, that they've grown to the point where they have so much sway and so much power that they're actually suppressing news items that they and their staff don't necessarily agree with um, under the guise of censorship and safety. And that's something that we've seen a lot over the past couple of years with the safe space movement on campuses. I, I know Gilbert and I, you, you got, you and I are in the same age range. So we, we were at campus not too long ago, living out this sort of safetyist, the limiting of speech and even language 
So this is extremely concerning. And it's funny that it happens to be this story, the story of which we already knew that there was something fishy going on between Hunter Biden and former Vice President Biden. The difference between a few days ago before the story came out and now is that we had an idea, but there was really nothing linking it all together. Now we have the, the, the reported on emails, text messages, iMessages that paint a much clearer picture that a lot of the stuff that conservative commentators and reporters uh, have been hypothesizing over the past couple of years are indeed very true. And it's funny that it was this story. I don't know if the if Facebook and Twitter thought they were going to get away with it, but I think the blowback for sure is definitely warranted. And regardless of the, the composure of the Senate or the House uh, come the next election, I definitely think there's going to be a lot more hearings where we have Jack Dorsey, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, and others coming in before mm -hmm. the, uh, the committees and really getting to the bottom of how that could happen. I think um, there's going to be a lot of regulations coming down the pike. So this is the, the final straw and we're just getting started. <laughs> yeah. And, and before we get into the legal and the nuance, I think you guys are absolutely right. Uh, one of the things that I mentioned to some of my friends and almost tweeted out before Facebook, uh, not Facebook, Twitter, Twitter went down yesterday was a point that there's a lot of us who despise government regulation. And I think there's a lot of danger in trying to regulate big tech. Uh, primarily a very simple question. If Biden were to win, do you really want a Biden-led FCC, DOJ, FEC using that regulation against conservative companies or conservative-leaning companies? So you always have to ask that question. If the shoe's on the other foot, do we like this regulation? And generally speaking, the answer is gonna be no. But you guys hit a really, really important topic, which is for all the arguments, those of us who tend to support individual liberty, limited government and free markets, a situation like this where a, an individual within a company, I'm not even willing to necessarily say a company, an individual within a company tries to put their thumb on the scale, or at least in perception, whether it really happens or not, in perception, makes it very, very difficult to argue against regulation. It's, it's still principle. I'm, you know, personally, I'm still going to argue against it, but it makes it very difficult because it does seem to validate everything everyone complains about, especially so I'm, I'm less concerned about the VP of comms of Facebook tweeting something out and more concerned that Twitter, at least for a little while, locked the press secretary account, Twitter account, locked the Trump campaign's Twitter account. That is to me the more concerning. Again, they're a private company. They kind of have the right to do whatever they want. But now they're reaching from kind of like the Alex Jones and the Laura Loomers into an area where people are saying, well, if it could happen to them, it could happen to me. And in fact, some people that I know that would fall within that category found that. So it's making it very, very difficult. And on the regulation side too, not only shoe on the other foot, but what we really, really want here are competitors to 
the current social media companies. Now, the social media companies, by definition, are not monopolies. But we do want competitors. We want to have options. We want the marketplace to work. And if we start with regulations, one of two things, either you're going to end up regulating the startups and making sure they never get off the ground, or you're going to end up doing this thing, and I can't remember who did it, but it's, it's chopping off the, uh, the tallest, the, the, the wheat fields, where you're going to say success is success to a certain point, and we're going to allow success to a certain point. But if you reach that point, you're going to become regulated. So you're defining success and what too successful becomes. Backing that up a little bit, let's remember where Facebook and any of the, uh, what do they call them? FANG, Facebook, Apple, uh, Amazon, and Netflix, and Google came from. They, lack a better term, they came from people's garages or dorm rooms. They came from an idea. Someone who just simply had an idea and a computer, or in some, in Apple's case, an idea and built a computer, and ended up taking it from nothing to where they are now worth billions, if not trillions of dollars. Those are success stories in a, that can only happen in America that we should actually highlight. Yeah, I'll say this too. I mean, when you look at today's tycoons, they're very much of the same vein as, you know, the railroad tycoons, the Rockefellers, the Carnegie's, the Vanderbilt's of the world. You know, we are very much living in a gilded age where Silicon Valley is the new playground of the rich, basically, whereas 100 years ago, it was Newport, Rhode Island, um, where they were all had their summer cottages but again I, I i see what you're coming from again that it's that that concept of the free market and also balancing fairness and free market principles and also to especially our first amendment rights of freedom of the press you know it gets a lot a very very tricky for sure yeah and that's really an, an excellent kind of segue into the policy side uh, and, and maybe more like layman's terms, uh, there, there's kind of like a, an issue with, say, like a, a big social media platform where they claim to be a public sphere, but then if they suppress something like that New York Post article, they're not actually providing that anymore. So is, is it almost in a way like a false advertising thing? Uh, where they say this is what they're providing to you as a customer, but they're not actually providing. I mean, that's, I think, something you could look into. But really, you actually have some really good Supreme Court precedent on this, that no matter what they say, they're not a public forum. They're a private, they are a pri private platform. So there, there are numerous Supreme Court cases on this one. And the Supreme Court decided one, I believe it was last year, um, where simply they said, simply because a platform even holds itself out as a form for public speech does not turn it into a form for public speech. And in fact, when we understand, so without even looking at the terms of the service, you and I understand they're going to remove content that promotes terrorism. They're going to remove, mm -hmm. even Facebook, they're going to remove pornographic content. They're going to remove content that's harassing or bullying. So they're even with our basic understanding, they're not a public forum. 
because a public forum could go to 4chan or 8chan um, where they don't remove anything. It mm. is, it's a nasty place. So they're not actually public forums, it, even regardless of, of what they may say in, con in Congress. There are a few things I think that bear looking into. Um, and I, I know some lawyers kind of poo-poo this idea and I understand why they poo-poo the idea. Um, but if we're looking specifically at what Facebook and, and Google, uh, not Facebook and Google, Facebook and Twitter did to the Biden story, is that an in-kind contribution to the Biden campaign? And you, you have competing interests. Um, so it, it, let me take a step back. Look to existing law and existing standards. So you kind of hit on one on consumer protection. And I can get into something a little bit later, but you have consumer protection. You have, um, in many states, you have what they call baby FTC acts, but, but acts that prohibit um, unfair or deceptive trade practices, which would include misrepresentation. Um, I don't really think they, they are because we, we all now in the public sphere kind of understand this thing happens. It, it's not, I don't think an institutional bias. I think it's employees who, who have too much power in the content moderation space, um, who decide to let politics start seeping into what they do. But that's not a, that's not a First Amendment question. That's not a Section 230 question. That's a corporate governance question. That's a do you provide too much authority to low-level employees such that it kind of ruins the experience and makes you look stupid? Uh, question. But, but on questions like this, is it an in-kind contribution? Uh, there's the FEC considered something back in 2015, 2016, where someone filed a complaint against Fox News for hosting a Republican presidential debate. And the FEC rightly stated that's not a campaign contribution. But what we haven't really had is a really good deep analysis of what is or isn't a campaign in-kind contribution from tech company platforms. Now, do I think this is a in-kind contribution? Yeah, I don't know. I tend to think not. But the fact pattern changes a little bit. When you have Facebook and Twitter saying we're not going to verify a candidate until they win their primary. So if you have, it doesn't matter which party, if you have a challenger to a Republican incumbent, Facebook and Twitter aren't going to verify candidate B as a candidate for office until they win their primary. They're not going to provide that blue check mark until after the election. That provides a leg up to the incumbent. And it doesn't matter whether Republican or Democrat. And in states like California, where you have the jungle primary system, that's a huge leg up, um, especially for Democrats. Is that a campaign contribution, in-kind contribution? This is where I think you need to look at existing law and ask the question of, do the principles of this law have an application in the digital world? I don't think you need to change law. I think Section 230 is pretty much great as it is. I think the First Amendment is great as it is. But what I think 
tech companies don't do and what I think a lot of these experts and a lot of these academics don't do enough thinking of is how does tech inter interact with other existing law? Now you have the internet that is expanded to every corner of the globe. We don't just use dial-up anymore. We use Wi-Fi. Like it's a changing world. And while again, you have Section 230 that, as you said, is great, and it does a really good job. And and when it comes to the the First Amendment, there are serious issues that are related to Section 230. Uh, for example, when you look at 4chan and 8chan and the dark web, there's a lot of stuff that are going on in the dark web and certain platforms like 4chan and 8chan, just to kind of use them as prime suspects and examples, like they don't moderate their content. And so mm -hmm. a lot of this illicit activity is going on, but yet them as the, the host, the platform, you know, can't take any of that down. So I know there, there was a few proposals um, that were brought, I believe, during the 115th Congress uh, that try to address some of the loopholes in Section 230 um, outside of, again, what we're talking about. I know it's a lot miscellaneous, but I just kind of wanted yeah. to provide that it's not just the issue of censorship by big tech. There's a lot of issues still that have not been, um, that have been tackled yet. Um, with yeah. Section 230. I think there's still a lot more issues that need to be tackled. Yeah. I, I, I can kind of see that, but I, one of the pet peeves that I have on this is one of the things about Section 230, I know we said 26 words, but it's actually more than 26 words. But, but one of the things in there states that nothing in this section shall be construed to impair the enforcement of various laws, including sex trafficking laws uh, and sexual exploitation of children, or any other federal criminal statute. To my knowledge, the DOJ has not invoked this section at all. So when we talk about things that we need to grow up, so when we talk about criminal activity on the dark web, or we talk about criminal activity on 4chan and 8chan, it doesn't matter really, because you have this, this exception. You have the, Federal law can still be enforced, but then you also have to, to ask the question. So, um, if you have if you have a situation where someone is posting something criminal, is 8chan or 4chan responsible for that, or should the speaker, the person who posted it, be responsible? Um, I don't think we want to pursue. 4chan, 8chan, Facebook, Twitter. I don't think we want to pursue the big tech companies when we see something criminal. Yeah. We want to go it's, it's, after the bad actors. Yeah, it's similar to the similar comparison would be if, if you know if you plan a bank robbery on your cell phone, you know, if mm -hmm. you're talking to your friends on your cell phone, planning a bank robbery, is Verizon uh, liable in that because they, you know, they provided that service in which you're able to to, to, to conduct that. Um, so yeah, you know, the similar question with, with, uh, big social media, uh, how, how far can they go in, in, uh, curating content and suppressing certain content before they lose that protection? Um, yeah, so there's, there, there's another great provision that often gets overlooked. Um, and for us lawyers, we don't really tend to overlook it because just as important as the substantive law are the definitions. And within the definitions, 
um, we see that Section 230 does not apply if a platform is responsible, quote, in whole or in part, end quote, for content. So I think there really is a legitimate issue, not so much on the, the curation of content, because that's a, that's a tool that anyone can use. Um, but when you create content, what does that mean? And I think there's a, a great example. And I'll follow it up with a question because I, it's, I think, a distinction in many respects without a difference. Facebook outsources its fact checking. It allows, quote, independent, end quote, fact checkers. It has created a neutral tool that, that anyone who's certified according to an independent body can fact check any story. And then it appends this. It's, it's just a tool. Twitter, on the other hand, does the fact checking itself. So is that fact checking from Twitter created in whole or in part? Now, why I think it's a distinction without a difference. You have to ask the follow-up question. What's the harm? What's the, how is someone harmed? So when Twitter fact checks the president on election issues, that's the harm. You can still see the tweet. It's just providing additional information. And I think that's something other people need to think through because what the typical counter argument is, it's like, oh, well, we can't see the New, York, the New York Post story, or it's not as accessible. Well, you can still go to the New York Post website. Um, <laughs> we can talk about the New York Post. We can talk about this thing called the Streisand effect. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> um, but people can still go to the New York Post and, and find it. You can typically still go and find the information. So what really is the harm? And if there's no real harm, why regulate it? It's, to me, it's, it's, it's really, I'm like, I, I'm sitting here going, this is really a dumb conversation because it distracts from the conversations we actually need to have. We, we, we could move on to um, the town halls it's, um, before we, we wrap it up. Yeah. Unless anyone yeah. has any final thoughts. At least one of my, my, my final thoughts actually, um, generally with uh, censorship, we think of government's censorship. Mm -hmm. But I guess what's kind of weird about uh, this, I don't, I don't know if I'm the only one who, who kind of thinks this way, but if there's any um, kind of entity in America that could, could rival the power of the government right now, it would be big tech. Uh, um, so, you know, maybe technically wouldn't, wouldn't still be um, considered censorship, but, you know, they've, you know, they've just become kind of a, a scary, powerful entity in some ways. I tend to think they're less scary. Uh, you know, uh, first and foremost, uh, I, I do have a issue with the term censorship because when you look at the actionable definition of censorship, it requires government conduct. Uh, a censor is, you know, someone that some someone or something that the government does. That's why I, I'm very deliberate in, for example, selecting the word suppress instead of censor because they, they literally suppressed the, 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 the link. Um, but my kind of my concluding thought is I, I'm not saying that Congress shouldn't look into things, but I'm saying let's, let's look at where Congress may have a role. And I'll just give an example and maybe we can talk about this in a later podcast. One of the issues that I have with a lot of tech firms, especially Twitter, is someone does something 
president, New York Post, anyone. They don't like it. And three days later, a week later, they came come up with a policy that says, this is against our terms of service, but we're gonna apply it to the tweet you made a month ago before it violated our terms of service. Is there a role for is there a role for legislation? Is there a role for Congress to step in and say, you can't do that? You can't, you, you can't come in and change your terms of service and then apply it retroactively. So I, I can leave that there. That's a, I think that's a great question. Yeah, it's, it's great just, question. yeah. On, it, on its face, that just feels very unfair. Yeah. And there's certainly going to be a lot of hell being raised after this week. <laughs> And we're just getting started. So, Jonathan, I know your work life is going to be really something else uh, over the next couple of weeks, months. So I, I don't envy you for a second. Uh, and if you need any whiskey, just tell me what your brand is and I'll send some over, and you know, just with some thoughts and prayers, knowing what you're going through. Um, but yeah, well, before uh, we wrap up uh, for this evening, since we are nearing the hour, uh, let's just talk a little bit about the town halls and then we'll get into uh, a little bit of what's coming down the pike, both for the D.C. Young Republicans as well as the YRNF as a whole. Uh, so what were some of our um, reactions from uh, the town halls the other night? I wasn't able to watch them. Again, my hands were tied this week. I was all over the place. Uh, so i am only been able to get the sound bites. But Gilbert, were you able to watch all of them? Uh, I watched all of, uh, the, of the Trump one tiny snippets of, of the Biden one. Uh, my, my general impression was, you know, of course, they're kind of just tossing softballs all night at Biden. And, you know, uh, the, the, the host of, of the Trump one was, I think everybody kind of noticed was outright debating Trump herself. And, you know, that's kind of expected. Uh, and I do appreciate that, that Trump's a brave enough figure that he knows he's, he's gonna go into it like that but he dives into the uh, lion's den knowing he's going to catch nothing but flack the whole time. But that was expected. But what really kind of bugged me is not only was she debating him, there was a certain point where it's just almost whiny and annoying um, as she, she kind of harassed him. General thoughts by me. Jonathan, were you able to uh, kind of get a, uh, a watch in with regards to the town hall the other night with President Trump? No, unfortunately, I was uh, busy with some other things. So, you know, that, like I said, the whole tech policy thing has exploded. So it's ended up in some late nights. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. And I, again, I, I, I listened to some of the highlights uh, earlier before uh, we started recording. And, and I agree with Gilbert. It just was a shouting match between the two of them. It really was. It wasn't even a town hall. It was a debate. And the comment that Trump made um, during the debate the other night is absolutely true. So when he said, oh, I'm, I guess I'm debating both Joe and you uh, to Chris Wallace, I definitely think Trump has picked uh, the media, the news networks as his enemy. And that means he's, I guess, campaigning against two fronts, which I don't, mm -hmm. I don't always think is a good idea for him to do. Sure, it may right. get, you know, most of our most excitable members to get up there and cheer them on. And sometimes I find myself cheering on, but I just, I, I think it's just too much. Uh, and mm -hmm. while I don't agree with how Savannah Guthrie conducted it the entire time and just the shouting match, I just don't think it was, 
it was mm-hmm. it was at all the success that I think Trump was going for. And, and I'll I'll, mm-hmm. I'll say two other things too. One is is that I just I don't know if anybody else has had this issue with the president, but again, he just uses the same lexicon of words over and over and over again. And uh, I, I think he uses the best words. <laughs> oh, okay, <laughs> the best the best words. <laughs> Yeah, goes through Merriam-Webster every night and picks out his favorites. Uh, and and the second thing too is that I I again I was listening to some of the things that he was saying, and again he he, he I guess he still thinks that this is still the 2016 election. And when he approaches these town halls and these engagements, uh, these debates, he treats it as if, you know, it's 2016 part two. It's not. It's a completely different world. He's the incumbent. He's technically a part of the establishment because he's been in Washington for four years and is the de facto head of the Republican Party. And he he just, again, when he says things like, I don't know about that, you should know about that. You're getting the intel briefs, you know, so it just it just again, that kind of anti-incumbency attitude that he's bringing to this race, I don't think it's going to help him in the long run. But again, he's been successful up to a point. So mm-hmm. again, he, he is his own. I just, you know, I, I know there's probably some of our listeners out there because again, the, the DDC Young Republicans represent a wide swath of the, the Republican community here in DC. So I don't know if there's other folks out there that are thinking the same exact thing. So I just wanted to raise those as kind of criticisms mm-hmm. to the president. So thank yeah, you. And, for and of course it's, it's hard to be a Monday night quarterback, right? Sometimes yeah. I, I cringe at certain parts of the, the debate, but facing what he's, he's facing, I, uh, you know, it's, it's hard, hard to have high expectations. Um, and I don't know if I would have been able to do much better myself, you know, I mean, he's, I, I just was going to say he's been doing it for years. He had a TV show. He's he's a master brander. Um, he knows how to brand things. It's just when it comes to you know the, the the policy. I don't know if he'd be able to give as eloquent as a as an overview to tech policy as our very own Jonathan here <laughs> was able to give uh, for twenty minutes. So it, it's it's something I love. I love looking at the strategy uh, of campaigns and appearances. And one thing, whether you love him or you hate him, Trump knows how to manipulate the media. He knows how to run a campaign and he knows how to appeal to his base. With that said, one thing that I really, really wish he would do is at least adopt a little bit of Mike Pence's approach. Mm-hmm. One of the things I think that Mike Pence taught us in his debate with Kamala Harris you don't have to interrupt all the time. You don't have to speak over everyone all the time. You can use your interruptions strategically and it has much more weight and power. And the other thing as a debater, I think that Mike Pence had a masterclass that that Trump could really, really use well and even apply it in his own way. Mike Pence would say what he wanted to say for a minute and a half, and then take 30 seconds and answer a question. I think Trump could use that very much to his advantage. Mm-hmm. Why? One of the, th- when you go back and you watch the debate with Mike Pence, when he would do that, Kamala Harris would end up responding to him instead of the moderator. And I think Trump could use that very, very, very effectively to hit Biden on any number of things. Mm-hmm. And I think it would just be 
incredible to see. It would show he's presidential and he can use whatever vocabulary he wants. He can use whatever style he wants within that. But I think it would be so much better. And I think it would throw Biden for a loop. Yeah, uh, Mike Pence is kind of facing that same scenario where it's a little bit of a two on one, but he did mm -hmm. a great job of calling the tune. Um, and yeah, maybe maybe Trump could pick up something from that, too. And if anything, any independent voter w watching the vice president debate was thinking they were probably thinking when they were listening to the policy that was being offered, like, wow. Republican policy makes a lot more sense in certain cases than Democratic policy. I mean, the Democrats are advocating for raising taxes. They're they're tiptoeing around the whole pack the court thing that they say they're not going to do, but we're supposed to wait to the end of the election uh, or after the election to listen to their official position. But when you but I agree with both of you when you listen to Pence, you get a sense that the policy behind the Trump administration. Um, does make sense. It's just sometimes the messenger of that, it, it, you know, with Trump's tactics and Trump's style, it just gets in the way sometimes. So, you know, just if you sometimes had a Mike Pence to talk about policy, I think you'd be more effective and Trump and P Pence might be doing it slightly better in the polls. Mm -hmm. But again, polls are polls and we don't look at national polls. We look at state state based right. polls. If there's anything I've learned after listening to a bunch of webinars over the past couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah. And we also don't watch polls that oversample dims by seven to nine points. That's also that's also a very important point to raise. You want you want 50 50 as best you can get. Yeah, so um, I, I'm looking at the clock. We've mm -hmm. just about hit our hour. Um, so we'll just wrap things up. Again, we've got how many days until the election? Uh, as of the recording of tonight, I think we've got 18. Is that right, Mr. Uh, Pol uh, Vice Chair of Political Activities? I think 18? Uh, I, I believe, yeah. <laughs> okay. Maybe I, I guess I should be the one to know. I, I just I knew it was three-ish weeks. <laughs> Yeah, so um, just as we wrap things up, um, just talk a little bit about what the next couple of weekends look like for for YRNF. Um, I think we've got something going on in Pennsylvania. Jonathan, you want to take that? Yeah, so this Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, there is a national deployment to Scott Perry's district, basically right outside of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. I know that's gonna be a tight race, thanks to the state Supreme Court that decided to redistrict a few years ago. Uh, Scott Perry went from, uh, Representative Perry went from a relatively safe seat to one that's hotly contested, but he's been a very good, solid conservative. Uh, I know he's in the Freedom Caucus, but he's also just a great guy to be with. And he's also a former Pennsylvania Young Republican chair, I believe, so he's, he's one of us. Um, and when I say one of us, he, I mean, I think he said that he was in the national organization the same time uh, Representative McCarthy was the national chair. Um, so he, he's just one of us, really good guy, gets it, understands it, and I really think there's an opportunity to go out and support him. Uh, I don't know if the DCYRs have linked to the, the national organization's event, but uh, you can at least check it out through the YRNF. I'm sure the DCYRs have. Okay, great. Thank you. Uh, and then this weekend, uh, Gilbert, do you want to take that? 
Yeah, I'll, I'll mention that we have a virtual phone banking deployment uh, with, with the, the Republicans National Federation into New Hampshire. Uh, so please check out the Facebook page and you'll see a link there. It's very easy to sign up. And, you know, it's something you can do to help because I'm sure a lot, a lot of people out there thinking of ways, ways they can help. And uh, you can do this just from home, making calls. And you could find all of, both of these phone banking events and these deployments on Young Republican National Federation page on Facebook. And you could also find it at www.yrnf.com backslash events. Uh, for more events that will be coming up, uh, whether you're listening here in D.C. or you're working remotely from home uh, in places like Ohio, Wisconsin, again, there's many ways to get involved, as Gilbert said, uh, and it's all hands on deck. Uh, so with that, thank you, gentlemen. Um, if you're listening for the first time, please subscribe. And if you liked uh, today's conversation of recapping the week, please give us five stars. Uh, and a positive review. We are currently on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Uh, so thank you again for tuning in with us, uh, and we hope you enjoy the rest of your weekend. Thank you.